0: Podcast going here. We have you know someone almost in Nebraska, someone in uh, Brooklyn, and someone in Connecticut. So it, it's making the world a smaller place. I'm doing well. Thank you.
1: That that it is. That it is. And, and without further ado, let's bring on. Just like Rich was alluding to, Mike. Look, Le- like Le- 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 hold on. Mike, Mike. How am I supposed to exactly pronounce
2: Mike from Brooklyn? You, you know what? My, I, I I do one. My father did the other. So both of them are correct, actually. <laughs> Uh, but,
1: you guys, uh, as you're you, a Mets fan Your
2: dad was a Yankees fan My father was indeed a Yankee fan And I I, I was a Mets fan For as long as I know uh, But I'm well How are you guys doing? Uh, Rich, you're at
0: the game today well, What's going on? Well, you know Today was um, You know, if you watch the broadcast On a regular basis They talk a lot about how In this day and age of baseball You don't see true matchups of aces as much as when Mike and I were younger watching the games, when you would see Seaver Gibson, Seaver whoever. Um, But this is a marquee matchup. It was a marquee pitching matchup between DeGrom and Bumgarner. And um, it pretty much lived up to the billing. Uh, Bumgarner, I have to say, as much as I'm not a fan of the San Francisco Giants, um, Bumgarner was a little bit better. DeGrom was very, very good. And and I guess, in summary, my statement about today's game would be 2018 kind of reared its ugly head today because what did DeGrom in was just some bad defense. Uh, we could talk more about that as we go. And just a bad break. So um, he was done in by both of those things, and it just seems like it's the same old story. He pitched very, very well. Um, a couple of things went wrong, and it just so happened that on the day that a couple of things went wrong, the Mets were up against another ace who beat them. So yeah, that that was kind of the story of today's game.
1: Well, it it seems as if Madison Bumgarner he has these uneven years sometimes. You know, he's injured, but he always seems to come back around, Mike, to to beating the Mets.
2: Uh, It it seems that way. The man's just a good pitcher, uh, if not a great pitcher of this era. So, you know, I tip my cap to him. Uh, DeGrom sort of battled himself uh, for big portions of the game today. But, you know, hey, bum, he's good. He's good. And and I like, as Rich alluded to, you know, classic matchups. And, uh, you know, in this instance, I'm a baseball fan. And uh, the result is, is secondary, really.
1: You know, the more I hear from the rest of the league, the more I'm convinced, Rich, that Jacob DeGrom is not going to win the Cy
0: No way. And you know, I don't like saying that. It pains me to say that, but it's true. He's not winning it. And I, and when I when I see people talk about it, it, it breaks my heart because yeah, I want him to win it as much as anybody else does. I really do. But but the fact of the matter is, you you could talk all you want intellectually about how wins are a team statistic, and that's 100% correct. Um, but the fact is, people look at wins. You know, we haven't fully broken the mold yet on that. A- and his wins are so far behind Scherzer and so far behind Nola that his other places where he has the advantage, like ERA, he has roughly a half-run ERA advantage over them. But, they, but uh, at least Scherzer has more strikeouts, so... You know He's way behind in wins. He's ahead in ERA, but he's also behind in a couple of other categories that even if he runs the table in his last six or seven starts, it's not happening. I mean, he's not winning the Cy Young unless Nola and Scherzer both absolutely collapse, and I don't see that happening. So we have to wrap our heads around the fact that, yeah, you know what? The team is going to cost him the Cy Young. It sucks. It Pisses me off like it pisses everybody else off, but that's exactly what's going to happen.
1: And I mean, even if he runs the table, like you said, it's not going to be that much. I I uh, I refer to him in the blurb as the winless wonder, which I think is such a depressing nickname, but it's it's like it just sums it up and has more to do with the Mets than in anything else. Mike, you, you know, let's say he keeps pitching this sharply. Um, and he runs the table that way, too, like where his ERA just keeps going lower and lower. I mean, we're getting into historic territory. Could potentially push push it over the, the, the limit? I mean, like you said, Rich, he's a, he, he's a he's almost like a run lower than these guys.
2: Uh, he is bordering on historic numbers. But, you know, we're Met fans, and sometimes love is blind, and we're not seeing the reality of the situation. Uh, Scherzer is ahead in, in you know, not just one category, but many categories. Uh, so, you know, if the season were to end today, Scherzer should, you know, deservingly win the award, not DeGrom. I would love to see him win the award, as, as Rich says. You know, you never want to root against your guy. But truth is truth, and we just have to be a little bit pragmatic and honest with ourselves and say, you know, in this instance, uh, and in this season, a, a better pitcher and a better man is going to win the award. Uh, I think the only thing that can put DeGrom over the top is if he pitches a no-hitter. Uh, that might push him over. Uh, but as it stands right now, we just have to, you know, suck it up. Uh, he, he, Number-wise, he's the second-best pitcher in the league, if not baseball. Sucks, but it is what it is this still doesn't take away from his greatness and and the season he's having. Uh, But some of us older fans, you know, we've seen Tom Seaver go through it. Uh, And not necessarily any of those guys from the 80s, you know. They managed to get decisions one way or another. You know, his, his, DeGrom's uh, batch of no hitters, uh, no decisions, excuse me. You know, that's a little ponderous. But beyond that, Ah, uh, you know it is what it is.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, I think the no decisions come from the way baseball works these days, and that he's being taken out before he can even try to get a decision. You know, Weaver might have been playing a lot of one-one games, but he would make it into the into the ninth, and then maybe they would win two to one in the ninth or something like that, and he'd be able to get something like that. Uh, Rich, Mike brought up an interesting point about if he were to throw a no-hitter, which I do believe Degrom has the stuff be consistent across nine innings to potentially throw a no-hitter. Um, but my question is, could it I guess it, it, it sounds like basically you guys think the only way it happens is if kind of like he did with his rookie of the year, where he was so damn good for those last two months that you you had to give it to him regardless of the fact that he didn't have the win there because the Mets sucked.
0: Yeah, well that's the truth, right? I mean, he's 8-8 eight and eight as a August 23rd. So, realistically speaking, given who the Mets are and how they play behind him, the number of starts he has left, I think it's fair to say he'll probably end up, I'm going to say 12 wins, right? Hopefully not another loss on top of that. Let's say 12-8, 12-8, 12-9, something like that, probably second in strikeouts. But you'll be looking at Scherzer, who probably will be 18 or 19-10, and 10 You'll be looking at Nola, who might be 17, 18, and 6 or 7. It's not going to happen. I'm, I it, it's, it's, To me, it's a, it's a moot point. And I'll tell you something else about that. And about the no-hitter, if he throws a no-hitter, I still don't think that's enough. I don't, it, even if it's a perfect game. Because the naysayers will say it's one game, and these other guys have the preponderance of stats in their favor. Um, and they're not entirely wrong. Like Mike said, a lot of the stats skew towards Scherzer. Um, Now, one thing I will say about the Grom and the Cy Young, and I'm starting to get a very strong sense of this, I'd like to see the Mets and the Grom come around to a point where they they sort of see that it's not going to happen. And what I would do with this guy for the rest of the year in the lost season is five and out. Five innings, maybe six, out. I I think at this point, having him throw 120 pitches in a game to try and get him, you know, Cy Young Award and, and keep him in because the team's only scored one run and he's down and try to get him the win, throw 120 pitches, throw seven or eight stressful innings, I'd like to see that stop. I'd like to see a reality. Crazy. What's that? <laughs> it's I true, just said, God
1: damn it, because, no, but like, no, but like, I – you know, I hadn't even thought about it like that, and then I remember, and then you started talking about it, and then I remember, and then I remembered who owns
0: this team. Right, exactly, and you know, and, and that's where this has to be now is you have to start thinking about 2019. Keep his arm from falling off. I, I personally, and I know nobody, everybody has their own opinion. I would limit him no more than 100 pitches in any start the rest of the way. And if they're stressful pitches, no more than 90. Let them have five innings. If the team scores enough for them in five, great. If not, start preserving those bullets, man, because the Cy Young's not going to happen. That's my opinion.
1: You know, it's hard because we also – I know that we on this podcast talk about opening these guys up, and, you know, he's our horse right now, and he's better than Noah Syndergaard. And no know it's in New York's good. Jacob DeGrom is masterful and one of the greatest pitchers that the Mets have ever had at this point. And um, I, I think my my opinion about it, and I don't want to do what the funds. are. It's like, you know, pitch because we're paying you. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> like, can you be more like the cliche, like, like villain owner? Anyway. Uh Mike, so what's your opinion on that? Let's go. Let's go with saving the bullet. I mean, I I kind of agree. If this this is where we are in this day and age, then yeah, you got to see the writing on the wall and get him not only a, a Cy Young Award next year, but a World Series championship. Um, but you know, like we can't we can't have as the old saying goes, we can't have our cake and eat it too.
2: I'm trying to be flexible. Uh, the game is changing, if not, you know, in the past tense. So uh, I, I'm with what Rich is saying, you know. In fact, I, I, I wouldn't be averse to it. I'm cool with it. It's a good idea, uh, just for sake of uh, preservation. On the other hand, I'm also a believer in, in muscle, mem- muscle memory. You know, and if you train yourself to be a five-inning pitcher, you're going to be a five-inning pitcher. And I'll use Noah Syndergaard as an example. We know last year it was a complete mess for him. Uh, in the season that it was, he averaged 4.3 innings per start. All right, now let's throw that out. His major league body of work, he only averages six innings per start. To say he's conditioned himself, to be a six-inning pitcher, and I made a joke of this on, on my blog maybe two weeks ago. That it's not wrong to ask more of a Marvel comic hero, <laughs> uh, and 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 that's my point. So yeah, saving bullets, as you say, Sam. You know, it's it's wise, it's it's prudent. I'll, I'll agree with that, and I'm even on board with it. Uh, but at the same time, there's this resistive part of me that, like I said, believes in muscle memory and, and what pitchers need to do, you know, to to stay uh, game-ready. And case in point, Noah Syndergaard, he's conditioned himself to be a six-inning pitcher. No more, no less. And I'm being kind by throwing out last year. So in all his full seasons, he's only averaging six innings per start. And, and and that's, uh, you know, I, I guess a gray area regarding this particular question, but that's my answer.
1: Jacob DeGrom's nickname is DeGrom. And quietly, he has been more super than two heroes over the last few years.
0: Rich, want to run with that one? Well, he has been. You know, he... Um... I was thinking about it today at the game when when he took the mound and they're playing Simple Man, right? And I'm going to quote Ron Darling here because Ron made this point, I think, the last time uh, Jacob started at Citi Field. He comes out to Simple Man, and that's who he is. He's not flashy. He's not the superhero. Nobody's ever done a – well, they did do a a bobblehead day for him. I take that back. But they didn't do a bobblehead day for him dressed up as a Marvel comic hero. The man is subtle. He's quiet. He's efficient. He just goes about his business, and he goes about his business in a superlative fashion. Um, yeah, I mean, Cindergard throws a hundred, which Jake does now anyway. But anyway, Cindergard's um, a little bit more flashy. He's been on, you know, the, the late night shows. Um, he's got the, the the Thor thing going on. Nobody does that for Degrom because Degrom's a simple man. But he's also the better man in terms of pitcher right now. Um, so. Yeah, I mean that, that's the way it is. I mean, the way it is is, and, and no, I'm not knocking Cindergard. I mean, everybody loves Cindergard, and, and he he's coming back from a, a lat tear where he missed most of last season, and he's had a workman like year. His record's very good. His record's nine and three, but he's just not the dominant pitcher that the eight and eight Jacob Degrom is. So, you know, it, it's it's like. Um, It's like Maris and Mantle in 1961, you know, where everybody loved Mantle, everybody, Mickey Mantle, oh, my God, he's the best thing ever since sliced bread, all this kind of thing. Well, that year, Maris is better. He get more home runs, but nobody talked about him. In fact, you know, the, the rumors I hear is that the Yankee fans would boo him because they wanted their man to win it. They didn't want Maris to win the home run title. It's kind of the same thing. He does still toil in Cindergaard's shadow to a degree, and it, it's insanity when you look at the numbers in the production. But it's just the way it is.
1: <laughs> it's remarkable, and we'll move on from Jacob Degrom after this. But maybe this is where it ends up being. So, so uh, who are the uh, Rich? Who are the pitchers that that are ahead of him numbers wise, quote unquote, for the Cy Young award?
0: Uh, I would say Scherzer and Nola. They both are having outstanding seasons. I can pull their stats up. It might take a minute. Well, I'd have I guess, to go there.
1: Guess what? Maybe, maybe they end up canceling each other out. People are fighting over whether it's Scherzer or Noah and Degrom. Degrom gets it. I, and that's I, the last I like. The, and the last thing I, say.
0: <laughs> I like your thinking. I so really do. Uh, <laughs> Spoken like a true Mets fan. Sabre, I love
2: it. I think the Sabre-Metricians are going to be the wild card in this voting. You know, as they will continue to be in the near future.
1: Well, they are uh, having more influence on the boat year after year, uh, as they are on the Hall of Fame boat. Although the transition with the Hall of Fame vote is not quick enough, as far as I'm concerned. Just put Spock in the Hall of Fame, and you'll have my blessing forever. Anyway, um, let's move on to uh, different topics. We're gonna. Well, I, I guess. better
2: to keep man, upper management within the context of this conversation because these are the kinds of things that they hang their hats on to justify, uh, you know, smallish smallish moves and transactions and whatnot. Uh, Jeff McNeil, you know, great, great, but let's all hold on to our horses and let them face adversity. Because once they see him enough, scouting reports get out. Okay, he's going to bite on this, and he hits that and whatnot. And it's a game of adjustments. Right now, he's getting the better of pitching. It'll turn around. The pitching will start getting the better of him. And, and we'll, we're going to see how he responds. That's the way it is with everyone. In the meantime, it's a great story. He made the leap from A, you know, where he was having a fine season with the Rumble Ponies. So he's deservedly here. Uh, but, you know, We're talking about still a minor league system that really does need a complete overhaul again after Sandy Alderson overhauled it. (laughs) You know, it's a little bit ponderous. But management, coaching, and, and philosophically, they need a complete overhaul. And that's why this team needs a new executive. Quickly, quickly, so we can get this ball rolling in the right direction. That's all. I'm not going to, you know, go off on a on a tangent. But you know, we need we need an executive in place quickly to get these wheels in motion. But Jeff, let's not care ourselves. At the same time, yeah, you you say guys in the multiple fashion. No, it's a trickle. It's it's individuals. Jeff McNeil is an individual. One guy who is coming up. We're very thin positionally within the system. They have more right-handed pitchers than anything else. So, you know, he's just one guy. There's really not many more behind him. Sure, we got guys at Las Vegas doing this and that, and and maybe two or three guys that are worth mentioning at Binghamton. Uh, but positionally, we're very, very thin in the minor league system. And if, like I say, we have a preponderance of right-handed pitchers that, you know, thus far aren't distinguishing themselves very well.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, of course, absolutely. It, it seems as if yet again they are, Rich, uh, bet, placing their bets on pitching and, you know, mostly from the right side yet
0: again. Well, well, yeah, and obviously everything Mike said is 100% true. They're weak. They're thin in the minor leagues pretty much overall. Well, I'll say this. They're thin at the higher levels of the minor leagues. They're thin at – you know, they're thin in, in AAA – A little better at double-A and a little better than that in in single-A. I'm not sure if you guys saw that after the – even though there are relatively few deals and Mets made at the the deadline, the guys they picked up moved the system ranking from 27th to 19th. So um, that's better. It's trending in the right direction. Apparently a lot of the scouts like this kid – like this kid Colome, that they picked up from the Phillies for Cabrera. So, okay. Um, He he went from, I think it was the Phillies, I want to say it was their 12th or 13th prospect to the Mets' fifth best prospect, just the day they got him. So it shows you something, right?
2: Uh, Well, that's an indictment against the Mets' system.
0: Absolutely. One person can make
2: that much of an impact, indictment against the Mets' system.
0: Now, as you say,
2: the majority – Of their you know better prospects Are in the lower levels There's a name or two that again That could be mentioned out of Las Vegas uh, And Binghamton but you get into This 40 man roster situation and who's Really a value and who isn't So and positionally You know we can search the system We can name a player For a position But not much more That's, That's a problem We don't have multiple prospects say At second base that we're going to converse about, or multiple prospects at catcher that we're going to converse about. But we have one player throughout the system that we can converse about, and, and that's a problem. And hopefully Omar Minaya is off and running, uh, you know, towards correcting this problem. Yep, yeah. and, so
1: that, that, and that is something that Omar, Omar's been better at, you know. That, that is something that Omar should be – Clearly focused on as part of this organization and as part of a assistant GM role should be scouting because it's, I mean, yeah, he should also have scouted some of the free agents better. Sure. You could say that like, Oh, he's got a great eyes for talent. Well, you know, um, but at the same time, um, and I'll pass it off to you after this rich, uh, you know, it, it was clear once. Uh, you know, Lucas Suda, Matt Harvey, Jacob Degrom, all these guys that we were talking about that he he drafted. Um, you know, yeah. He, you know, some people wanted to give it all to give Omar Minaya a national championship ring. So, national league championship ring. So, I mean, yeah. I think that is what his focus should be squarely on. And I'm, I, I you know, like like you said, I, I, I I'm guessing you would agree.
0: No, I I would agree, and I'm not sure if this is where you wanted to go next, but I I think we are at this point where, to use Mike's term, it's a bit ponderous to me when you have weaknesses in your minor league system and you clearly need to bring in some talent. And then you look at the major league roster and you see log jams in places, right? You see things like the first base position drives me mad. It drives me crazy that they have a cast of thousands playing first base, It's like, okay, you know what, why can't you clear out some of these guys, even if you get a single-A prospect or a double-A prospect, and make room for a Dom Smith who is one of your few young players you want to take a look at. And maybe in the process, you're getting multiple benefits. Why haven't they traded Jose Bautista yet? Why? Why haven't they traded Flores yet? I'm sorry, we know what this guy is. He could hit. He has an interest. Maybe other teams have an interest in him. They have the, the Mets clearly don't know what to do with this guy. He's all over the diamond. So you find a team that could benefit from him, find a team that could benefit from Bautista, maybe Mesoraco, a few of these guys. You know, Even if you're bringing in single-A prospects, maybe a double-A prospect here and there. But, but that's the part that frustrates me the most, is you know you have a need to get better in the minor leagues, and you have all these bodies that you that you don't know what to do with doesn't it make sense to start getting rid of some of those bodies and bring in some of that young talent you might need I mean I, I uh, drives me nuts when I see when I see this
1: uh, the Don Smith thing is just out of control really and I mean if he never provides them anything valuable from a, a playoff drive perspective it's going to be completely their fault Uh you got you got this really talented candidate. He's lost he's lost a ton of weight, uh, and and the opportunity is there for him. But you know, here here we here comes Bruce. Here we go, and oh god, you're absolutely right. It's just and the Bautista part. I hadn't even really thought about it. Um, it, it it's weird how he's like all of a sudden got. You know he's got low average, but he's actually serviceable, weirdly enough. But and that's why you're absolutely right. Even if it's just getting some other younger bodies of some sort, even if it's, they're not highly ranked, you know. It's, um, I and and just because we're talking about the minor leagues and trying to replenish it, I remember that when Kibo went down for the year, I saw a tweet that said, "2,000 sucks so badly, we can't even get Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You see, he was definitely going
2: to get a up The the fact that he's part of this conversation is sad to begin with. You know, that's all I'm going to say about that. Exactly. Exactly. Go
1: ahead.
2: No, Sam. Go ahead. Go right ahead.
1: No, I was just gonna. I was going to segue back to Jeff McNeil, but I want a Mike rant before I do that.
2: No, I was. I wasn't going to rant. I wasn't going to rant. If anything, I was just going to add to what Rich was saying. Uh, I'll take it a step further. You know, look how they treat their minor league players when, once they get to Flushing. Conforto, out of position. Nimmo, out of position. Dominic Smith, out of position. The only one they've actually cleared out the position for and allowed him chance to, you know, learn and grow is Ahmed Rosario, which brings up yet another point that he's learning. the He's learning fundamentals at the major league level. You know, being giving classes on the side uh, two days a week or whatnot or whatever regiment he's following right now. But the fact that he came woefully unprepared and and that they would acknowledge this publicly and oppressor, yeah, we're teaching them baseball as we speak, that to me is an indictment. Again, look how they treat all their prospects. They consistently play them out of position. Older prospects that, you know, are no longer prospects. Now they're veterans like Wilma Flores. He still doesn't have a position. Jeff McKnight, we've seen him play a couple of different positions already. And you have to mention Conforto, Nimmo, Smith. Only because of injuries to Cespedes and Bruce and whatnot that they're actually in their natural positions. So I'll point back to the lack of an executive because we keep killing ourselves over the same damn things every single year and there's a constant a common denominator you know underlying all this and that's why we need a new executive with ace with ace
0: I think Mike's right obviously on the executive to me it's like what are you waiting for why are you interviewing now what are you waiting for that you know, wouldn't it be nice to have someone in by – of course, I can't happen, but if you had planned earlier – have someone in by September 1st who could at least have a month to watch the team as in an executive capacity and maybe say, okay, look, you know, regardless of what happens here, I want to see Dom Smith five days a week, whatever it is. To get a glimpse of this team. The way, that, the way this is going to play out, they'll probably have a new GM in place shortly before the winter meetings, you know, in the October-November time frame. And the person wasn't in this executive capacity during the season, and it just doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like you're rolling with a three-headed monster. When what the hell is it, what the hell good is that doing you? If you've made your mind up, you're going outside the organization. What to Mike's point? Why aren't you going post haste? And I feel like I have to say this: i playing guys out of position because that's my hot button. Uh, someone has to help me understand the logic behind why this organization is so obsessed with it. Um, I have to tell one quick story on that. A couple of Sundays ago, I went back and forth on Twitter with Mike Vaccaro from the New York Post, who his point was, Dom Smith should be up here playing left field every day. And that set me off. because First of all, He says, well, you want to see what you have in Dom Smith playing left field. No, Dom Smith is not a left fielder. His future with your organization is not in left field. That's Michael Conforto's position. And also, you're not evaluating holistically Dom Smith by playing him out of position. You want to see if he could hit and play the position. The only way you're going to evaluate this guy is by playing him in his proper position. And then on top of all of that, my point was, it's, it's unfair to the guy to say, okay, you're basically auditioning for your baseball life, and you're going to give that audition in a position that you've played professionally, including the minor leagues, professionally about 25 times. Go, go, go at it, kid. Go play a position you've never really played in the major leagues and fight for your life. Is that the way you treat this kid? I mean, seriously. And, and, and while you're doing that, you have a cast of thousands at his position first base, None of whom should be there in the first place. Uh, it makes me <laughs> It's come on, Agreed. guys. What are you doing? You know. Agreed. And it just goes back to the the same thing over
1: and over again that we we keep talking about, and and it's just, it's just it it's so difficult to keep going in circles. And the only thing new that we have is whatever hot button topic. We got this week specifically, you know, about Donovan left field and, and that and it just all comes back to it all comes back to what we know. That they're shitty owners of a baseball team. And they don't know what they're they're doing on an executive capacity as a company. As a company. Forget about you know it's it's all well and good that he made as much money as he made in real estate, Fred. But he has they—they like, they have that much understanding of what it's like to run a business and run an organization and build liquid that way. Then how? What they've been doing? It literally is Jeff having his toy, a baseball team, <laughs> and he just and he keeps and he keeps playing around in the in the playpen. And Jeff at no point says, you know what? Those are some really screwy
2: castles you're making, (laughs) kid. Mike. That's the rant I've been trying to avoid, and and I'm still trying to avoid it. Let's just get an executive in here, because that's going to tell us everything. That's going to tell us whether ownership is really serious about change or whether they're just bringing in another puppet, you know, to do their bidding. Uh, which is somewhat clueless, let's call it what it is. Get an executive in here, because that's going to tell me everything I need to know. That's going to tell me everything I need to know about this organization moving forward. Get an executive in here and do it quickly, okay? This way we can have somebody with uh, uh, macro and, and, and micro abilities to, to, you know, provide oversight, of the organization as a whole, the minor league system, the team in Flushing, and and to make sure ownership's needs are are met in a satisfactory manner. We need a lead, a lead man, a lead baseball man. And if I can't have my way and have them separated by a team president, whatever, but give me uh, an effective executive with a backbone somebody who will look ownership in the face and say, look, if you don't let me do this my way, there's no reason for me to take this job, okay? There's no reason for me to take this job if I'm not going to be allowed to function in the best way I see fit, okay? So if Will Pons are faced with two, two scenarios, either they avoid people like that or, or they, you know, seek people like that. Their decisions their 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 list of candidates is going to speak volumes, and who they ultimately are is going to speak even loudly. So let's hurry up and get this done so, as Rich says, what are they going to do? Wait till the off season and then just you know to somebody into the winter meetings. That's stupid. Get somebody in place now quickly and, and if it's in your mind to make one of these guys. Your main man moving forward, well, then do it now. This way, whatever ideas this person has can start implementing them with pace. But why sit and wait? I know in earlier podcasts I said, you know what, I don't care how they manage the rest of the season, just as long as they go into the offseason and get it right. But, you know, there's no time like the present. And at some point, you just got to say, okay, this season is what it is. Let's reset our priorities. Problem is we're dealing with an ownership who, you know, attendance is of, the, is of their utmost importance. It's foremost on their list of things to worry about. Attendance. So they're going to do things like keep Reyes around and keep Batista around, you know, and metal and metal.
0: Stop me. Rick, stop me. Stop me. I, got you, stop I got you, Mike. I got you, Mike. You know, you're making good sense, Mike. Um, you have to wonder what's behind this. Like, in other words, I, I, you almost wish you had Jeff Wilpon in the room sitting down. You say, look, you must have a reason why Jose Bautista is still on this team. Is it – help me understand what it is. Is it going to be the, well, you know, all we could get for him was a, uh, a non-prospect on, on the, at the A-level, so we figured he has more value to us than, than that non-A-prospect. Okay. Well, I'd like to hear some rationale for Bautista, for Reyes, for, uh, you could, the list goes on. Mesoraco, I mean, you know, you could just go on. You could make an argument around Blevins. I mean, Blevins is a guy that you have to make a decision on. If you think you might want to bring him back, then keep him here, right? No problem with that. But if you think you're not going to, for whatever the reason, he is 35 years old, by the way, um, then why is he here? What the hell are you doing? You know, why why are you taking these these logjam-like chips and turning them into prospects? Is it because, like Mike said, you think you're appeasing your fan base by winning 68 instead of 67 games? Is that the reason? I I don't know. I'd love to hear him explain it because I'll tell you what. In the absence of solid knowledge around what the rationale is, we're left to fill in the blanks as fans about what we think the rationale is and what Mike said is what we think the rationale is, to win five more games in a lost season instead of replenishing your farm system and not hiring a GM. These things on the surface, folks, make no sense at all. I would, to be fair, I wish we could have somebody from the team talk to us and tell us exactly what they're thinking, but they would never do that, of course. So we fill in the blanks with our own knowledge, and it looks like it's just stupidity, and that's what we're going with.
2: Let's not kid ourselves. The, the Will Ponds have spent money. The Will Ponds have spent money historically, lately, whenever. They have spent money. It's just that they spend money off times for the wrong reasons. It's usually in in reaction to something. You know, it's knee-jerk, and sometimes it's quite wondrous as to whose decision was this. And we can go back to people that, you know, they steered clear away from, like uh, your Vladimir Guerrero's in history and and the people that they actually went forward and, and, and chased down. But my point is, get an executive in place and, and and let him make baseball decisions. Baseball decisions. You know, let's let's play business for dummies for a second. How do you increase profits? Well, the one school of thought is, all right, stop buying office supplies. There's another school of thought says, well, let's reinvest into the product and, and grow it more. <laughs> You know, so those are two, two schools of thought.
1: Once upon a time, there was a National League team in New York, Brooklyn, in fact, uh, who was millions of dollars in debt and losing every season. Yep. And the league, the league president, Fort Frick, uh, recommended somebody to this, uh, these owners and um Uh, in basically uh, with the blessing of the trust of uh, Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Trust Company, who they owed millions of dollars to. And that man was Larry McPhail. And by the time he left Brooklyn, they were profitable. And by the end of their tenure, they were were the most profitable team in baseball, even more profitable than the Yankees. It can be done. Larry McPhail was that type of uh, of man who literally went in there and said, you better, if I'm going to take this job, because I've been recommended, um, you got to give me the money I need to do what I want, and you have to set it up with the trust so I can just go in there and get it. Now, I don't know how that specific part correlates uh, to what needs to happen now, um, but... Specifically, Larry McPhail was a guy who made brash, bold decisions and in doing so changed the game of baseball when people were telling him that he was crazy for implementing things like night baseball. Um, And like Mike said, that is exactly what needs to happen right now. Rich, what do you think about Jeff McNeil so far? Sorry about
0: that. Um, so, sorry about that. Something went wrong, went wrong with my oh, no. computer. Um, so, Jeff McNeil, no, I, I, you know what? It, it's hard not to like this kid. I mean, how can you not like him? He, um, the, he really, he's basically done everything they said he could do. He's got some pop in his back. If you watch his post-game interviews, he talks about, um, he talks about the different ways he goes about things where you know, he's up there trying to look for a good pitch, he's trying to not strike out, he's trying to put the bat on the ball, and when he does put the bat on the ball, he can occasionally, you know, hit it for some power. Um, and the one thing I would say I'm most impressed with is his defense, because, you know, you heard that he was, well, you know, uh, you didn't really hear he was a liability, but, um, but he, you heard that he, his defense was developing. Well, I've seen the kid look really good. He turns the double play really He's made some really nice plays on, on balls up the middle. So, Like Mike said before, you know he's going to slump because all hitters do, and you know the league is going to adjust to him because they always adjust to all players. Um, so, but at the same time, you're waiting for that to happen. It hasn't happened yet. That will be the next big test for him. But right now in his infancy in terms of his career, I think he looks fine. And I don't know what everybody else thinks, but, you know, it's hard not to like this kid. You know, he, he plays both sides of the ball well. He's got a good attitude. Um, and I think the term I, I've heard used for him by, um, by the broadcasters is he's a, he's a breath of fresh air in the lineup. Because unlike a lot of the guys who are up there swinging for their heel, from their heels trying to throw out the ballpark, this is a, an old-fashioned, hard-nosed guy who tries to put the bat on the ball. And it, and it is refreshing to see, so I, I like him. I really do.
1: Yeah, and that was uh, what I'm going for. I haven't been able to watch too much of him, but what I've seen is is that, like you said, and I haven't even heard the, the post-game uh, interviews to confirm that, but it looked like it's nice to see somebody so contact-oriented coming up through the system, and especially because he had to achieve an older prospect, so it's nice to see that kind of contact, and, 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 you know, I don't know – and, and Mike, you might know more about Jeff McNeil from his uh, his his minor league uh, career, but, you know, when you are not making it with whatever's going for you,
0: um,
1: if you, you know, focus on whatever can work and, and focus on being more contact-oriented, and, and if you have the, the wherewithal and the sharpness to turn your game around, this is the kind of thing that happens. Um, Daniel Murphy was like that jumping from double-A to, to the majors. Obviously, he was a little younger than McNeil is, but he was never a highly rated prospect, and he had to make adjustments and eventually make such an adjustment that he's an RBI machine now. Um, although I I, I know he, he was coming back from a knee injury, and I don't know how he's doing, but uh, he's on the Cubs now. We can loop back around to that at some point. But anyway... Um, yeah, I you know I I hear what you're saying, Mike, uh, about the entire system as a whole and the fact that they will adjust. But uh, I I think that if you can make yourself, if that's your approach, to not strike out, then you are going to be, and which should be everybody's approach really. But let you know, people are swinging to the fences.
0: <laughs>
2: it's a it's a um, wonderful approach. I, I I wish more players would adopt that approach. You know. <laughs> a hit, hit, be a contact hitter because once you put the ball in play, magic can happen. Jeff McNeil is a good player. You know, uh, I have nothing bad to say. He 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 made an impression at, at Binghamton. He hit uh, in excess of ten. I think he was three twenty something. If um if, if I remember correctly, I looked at the stats this afternoon. I might be wrong on that, but. Better than, better than that is is we're in a situation at second base where we have a little bit of competition, and that's where, you know, the team of the whole needs to be. At Las Vegas, you got Christian Colon, who's having a pretty good season. And, and at Binghamton, there's a shortstop named Levi Michael. So, you know, right there, if you include Ahmed Rosario, you have competition up the middle. And, and may the better men win. You know, I'm not saying Ahmed is, a, is even a lock at this point. Let's see what Michael has at Binghamton. Let's see what happens with his career, our progressive next season. But my point is we have competition at second base between two young players. Let's not forget T.J. Rivera is coming back as well, hopefully. Uh, and we have two young players, you know, that hopefully by next season we'll, we'll be buying for the shortstop job. Uh, so competition is good. Young players is good. You know, and moving Cabrera was good. You know, as Rich said before, you know, stop bogging yourself down with these old players. So the situation we have at second base is the approach that they need to take in other positions. Catcher, first base. You know, they need to reconsider third base. Todd Frazier's on a short contract. He might want to eat that money and open it up for other players. The Mets still have Peter Alonso to deal with. Not that I want to see him this year because I don't think he's ready to be a major leaguer yet. He's still making, you know, his adjustments to AAA pitching, and the numbers sustain that, you know. But come next season, uh, as Rich said, stop bogging yourself down with these older because there are one here and one there, and, and, and a select few that you're going to be able to work with. That's it. So Jeff McNeil is part of that young competition. May the better man win.
1: Uh, I, uh, you, you unload, you unloaded a bunch of stuff that I want to cover here. Um, before we segue to to number seventeen, and I'm trying to think of where I want to start, and I think I want to start with Todd Frazier before we we loop back around to some of the other ones. I would argue that you still need a guy like Frazier next year. Um, and what we you know we we went from you know we we saw that last year the clubhouse fell apart, and that was the narrative with getting some of these veteran players in, you can't completely wipe them out. Um, even though somebody like Bruce is just unfortunate because now it's like, we really liked that contract, all three of us really. And now it's like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> but let's let's start with Frazier. He's got 14 home runs. I know that, you know, he was injured for a hot second. Um, and, and he also um, – he was slumped, you know. He he slumped a little bit more than than you expected, but like he's picked it up a little bit recently. Um, and I would still argue you kind of need that that thing going next year. And obviously you can kind of trade him at the deadline next year if you want. But Rich, if you want to cover that real quick, I don't think we have to go too deep into Todd Frazier. But since we're talking about players to move, you did not mention you mentioned Batista. You didn't mention Frazier. So what's your what's your take?
0: Well, I, I put Frazier and Bruce in the same category. They're not movable, um, because the only way guys like that are movable is if the team trading them is willing to eat some money, I think we know where the Mets stand on that. So, you know, I think it's sort of like the degrom Cy Young thing all over again. I think we have to accept the reality that Frazier and Bruce will be Mets next year. I, mean, I suppose there's a chance that they might not be. Of course, anything can happen, but Frazier's owed about, if I remember correctly, about eight and a half million next year or so. I think he signed seventeen million two years. So, who who's going to pay him nine million dollars? I mean, if you can move him, you definitely can't move Bruce. I can't see anybody pe- taking two years at thirteen million a year for a guy who hardly played this year. So, um, but you know what, Sam? I think you make a point. You know, if you accept the fact that traders, that Frazier is not tradable and say, okay, over the course of a full season, you know, he's been hurt a lot this year, 14 home runs. Over the course of full season, I guess you can count on him for about 25-ish. And early in the season, he seemed to really be struggling defensively. He's not struggling anymore. He's making, you know, he's very solid. He doesn't make outstanding plays, but he makes all the plays over there at third. So maybe you just have to accept the fact, based on contracts and based on the team's decision on eating money, this is our third baseman. Okay. Bruce, it's unfortunate. You know, that I like Jay Bruce, but I mean, come on. He's done nothing and, and he's going to be here. So that's the reason. To answer your question, the reason I don't mention divesting of Frazier is I think it's the right baseball move, but no one's going to take him. And I think you have to just say, okay, he's our guy. We'll take it. We can get out of him. And Sam, to wrap it up, I think the point you were going for is he does give you something on the field, and he does give you something intangible. It was fun watching it earlier in the season with the salt-and-pepper thing. And he is a good clubhouse guy, and he is – he does – he's like the David Wright. He's always in front of the camera. He never dodges the reporters. He's got a New York way about him. It's not the worst thing in the world, you know, if you hold on to Todd Frazier. It really isn't.
1: Mike, if you want
2: to hit on that. Bruce and Frazier, to me, represent an undynamic duo. It's as simple as that. And of the two, Frazier's, you know, contract makes most sense if you're going to eat one because, as you guys say, nobody's going to accept that money. They're just not. So uh, I think it's in the best interest of the Mets to just move on and open up these positions to younger players. Uh, it's 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 me picking on Frazier, but I'm not picking on him. It, it, I want this done throughout these uh, field positions. Uh, it 's just a philosophy. when are you willing to move on? i don 't think we need that key guy in the dugout, and i don 't believe we need what he what he brings to the table. He's playing up to his baseball card when he 's healthy, and that 's just not what the mets need and and Again, through, together they 're an undynamic duo and, and you 're just repeating yourself that you 're going to continue to put pan these two together in the middle of the lineup. In their Met careers, at least they've proven, you know, they've proven their inability to stay on the on the field. And Rick Pietro says it on the radio: a player's best ability is his availability. And for the most part, they've remained unavailable to this team. So just eat the money and move on. Philosophically, when are you going to make the break? That's just holding on. That's clinging to old school ways. When are you going to make the break? Unfortunately, they say in life the most. Or or the best decisions aren't the most popular ones. So until an executive gets in here and starts making some very cold-hearted decisions, you know this is this is our like Myers Met fans spinning our wheels in the mud over the same things month after month, season after season. Raise the contract. He has one more year. Eat it. You're not going to eat Bruce's money. Frazier's contract, eat it. Because at best, at best, Bruce and Frazier together represent a 500 caliber middle of the order. Average. Half of the league is above them, half of the league is below them. And that's being kind. Make the break.
1: Uh, Rich, Ahmed Rosario, he looks like he's been learning some baseball as
0: a player. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I, I think the the commentary I heard on the broadcast about a week ago was spot on. You know, it, it's he's making progress. You're you're starting to see some of the natural athletic ability. He made a really nice play in in deep in the shortstop hole today. So you're starting to see it a little bit more consistently. It's incremental change. It's not radical change. Um, he will continue to swing at balls out of the strike zone, not as much. Incremental change again, but he's he's ticking upward to a point where, you know, I, I have no problem with his Are I, I, you know, a lot of fans have given up on him. They're down on him. But to me, keep in mind how young this kid is. Uh, keep in mind that. When we scream about younger players and wanting them, this is what you want. You want, that's what a younger player is. A younger player is raw talent that you must refine. Now, to Mike's point, in a good organization, that young talent is refined in the minor leagues. It hasn't been happening here. So you have to take this clump of clay you have and turn them into something on the major league level, which could be frustrating. But Rosario's that guy. Rosario, you need more Rosarios, not less. Um, again, for the, probably the next season or two, he's going to continue to frustrate. Think about the game tu- uh, Tuesday night when, um, when he came up with a man on third, when Re- Reyes was on third with one out, and a veteran pitcher on the mound. Raise your hand if you didn't see a strikeout on three pitches coming, because the veteran pitcher on the mound, uh, Watson, knew exactly what to do. Uses use his aggressiveness against him, go out of the strike zone, and it's going to take a while before Rosario is no longer susceptible to that. Fortunately, the aforementioned Jeff McNeil saved the bacon and got the double, but, um, but that's Rosario. A lot of talent slowly coming together, but I, but I'm okay with it. I'm I'm okay with it. I wish it happened in the minor leagues, but I do think, like I said, this is the profile player you want on the team.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't know why some fans are down on him. I mean, and maybe that's the problem that we need to look ourselves in the mirror about uh, sometimes when it comes to fandom. <laughs> is 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 this the reason why uh, consistently over the course of fifty six seasons, or is it fifty seven seasons now? My God, fifty seven. Um, but is this is this why over the course of, of this many seasons that and probably more so now even. now even, you know, I think the Wilpon would be terrible regardless. There's plenty of people out there that run their organization properly without Sam kind of being a little out there. Um, but you, Mike, and I'll, I'll start with you. Do you think maybe we need to take our, take a look in the mirror sometimes and go, this is this is good. What Ahmed, Ahmed Rosario is doing in the development that we're seeing is a good thing, and especially where you're supposed to be getting other – Type of offense. Really, he's exactly what you want right now out of a shortstop, an elite defender who is like 260, 258, uh, 265. And right now, that's within a 22, 23 year old kid who's who's still learning, who has a ton of talent, who could very well be a superstar in two to three years.
2: I'm on you know, side.
1: Jose, Jose Altuve was a good hitter from the get go, but it took him, you know. Um, a, a few years to really, for the rest of the league to realize how great of a hitter he is. I mean, this 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 is this is what happens. Go ahead.
2: Uh, I'm on his side. Uh, to your other point, everyone should look at the you know at least once a day. Everyone should look themselves in the mirror, you know, you know, and, and take a, an honest minute menace- assessment of themselves. Uh, but Ahmed, you know, I credit his ability to, you know, learn on the fly and absorb the teachings that Mickey Calloway and, and the coaching staff are, are providing for him on, on, on a major league level. And I credit them individually for their ability to elevate his game on the fly. And I credit Callaway for incorporating, incorporating all this together, you know, into his day-to-day play. So – Ahmed Rosario is is a is a positive story, you know, and until things, you know, fall off a cliff like a lemon, uh, I won't say otherwise. But as we've said, I, I wish all this refinement would have taken place down on the farm, not here. That being said, you know, they they're addressing the matter and they're addressing it in a in a positive fashion, unlike other situations. And with
1: that, I guess uh, before we segue over to um, um, the feature of our episode, uh, I'll I'll go to you first, Rich. If there's anything else uh, we should cover uh, with 2018 before we we head a year and a few back. Well, you
0: know, I think one thing that, that that I want to say here is that the team is it's it's fascinating to look at at their progression through this season. At the end of May, they were 500 team. And since July 1st, I believe they are a game over 500 at this point. It might be 500, it might be a game over. So, in fact, it's a game over. If you look at it, fell apart in June. So, so what does that tell you? It's a team that has had one, two, three, four okay months and one horrific month of 5-21 baseball. So will the real Mets stand up? And I think that that's an important thing, because if you're a 500 team, which is what I believe this team was at the beginning of the season, I think my prediction was 84 and 78, basically 500, little little over. If you're a 500 team and you want to contend next year, you're you have work to do, but you're not really far off. If you're if you're really the, the disastrous team we saw in June you have to take a different path. You have to totally strip it and you know, you can't, you're, you're a long way away from contending. So I think in my opinion, I want to get your guys reaction to this. I think the, the, the good play of late, we'll call it the, the mediocre play of late muddies the picture. It doesn't make it clearer. It makes it harder to figure out what this team is and exactly how far away from contending it is. Um, It's, it's hard to get a read on a team that, again, four or five months has been a 500 team. Okay. Not good, not bad. Mediocre. Definition mediocre. But one of those months, shit the bed in a way that, epically, 5-21 is, is god-awful. So, in my opinion, the play since July 1st has been okay. They've been more fun to watch, you know, a little bit. But I think it's actually muddied the picture. What do you guys think?
1: Well, I mean, that seems to be – I'll take it first. That seems to be what usually happens. I mean, it's what happened in 2013 after Matt Harvey went down. We figured, oh, you know, we're going to have to hunt it for another year. But, you know, they played good baseball, and we thought we had something a little closer in 2014 than, than it really was. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, like, okay, so, Rich, let me ask you something then. Let me bounce, let me bounce this back to you before we go to Mike with that. Um, why do you think – they have been better, and, and weirdly enough, like some. Of, I feel like some of the answers are obviously, you know, better overall play by their bullpen. Um, uh, uh, I think people like randomly like Austin Jackson even is one of the reasons they've been winning. Um, and they're starting to, of course, starting pitching's been better, and they they've been providing a little bit better support. They've been getting more timely hits. Michael Conforto's been coming around. But what about you? What do you? Think? Those are those are your thoughts of me you know, who who's actually been unfortunately a casual watcher when it comes. I check in on
0: them every day of course, but uh
1: that that is what I'm picking up on. What do you think?
0: I think that's right. I think I think what you've seen is the bullpen has been better. Um and that's a big thing. You know, Blevins has figured it out. He's an enormous part of that bullpen. The situational lefty. Uh, so the bullpen's been better. It started when Familia was still here. He was here for the whole month of July. And he, he was really good in July. So the bullpen's been better. Uh, Drew Smith, Tyler Bachelor, you know, the young arms that they've brought up have been good. The starting pitching, Zach Wheeler, has been fantastic. The has continued to be fantastic. Singer has been better. Matt, uh, you know, we're still waiting for. Vargas has been a little better. So it's really been on the strength of the pitching. It's really been the settling in of both the rotation and the bullpen. And the reason they're not better than 500 over those stretches is the offense is still a problem. Um, you know, you you could pick it apart. You know, the statistics that, that ESPN was all over on Sunday night, if you guys saw it, was the Mets have the third best offense statistically on the road and the worst at home in, in baseball. I mean, what? How does that make any sense, right? So they've got to figure the offense out, find a way to consistently score more runs. But I think the um, – the uptick to mediocrity has been almost entirely on the back of the pitching staff, both bullpen and starters. And if I had to pick one offensive uh, piece in there, it would be Conforto. Yes. Uh,
1: but, I mean, I mean, I think it's glaring what it means, and it just we keeps coming all back around is that the Wilpons might have ruined this franchise at home
2: for at least 50 years. Mike? <laughs> Uh, they've indeed been riding their pitching. That's the way Sandy Alderson built it. Because after two, uh, excuse me, 2015, you know they went from rebuilding to win now mentality. Uh, this season is a reflection more of the 40 man roster than anything. This season and last season, for that matter. Cespedes, Bruce, Frazier, the core of your lineup, the middle of your lineup, out. Therefore, you need to re-fortify the system in order to develop your core players. You know, going out on the free agent market is risky. You know, we all demand spend money, 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 but going out there is risky. You know, off-campus transactions don't always work. You know, the best you can do as an organization is to build Quality and quantity, and you do that from within. So, to me, this argument all points back to that. They were rebuilding, but they stopped because so they want to pen it, and they went into win now mode. So they spent money and strike one, strike two, strike three. They're out. Change now. Okay, replant the seed. Hurry up and get an executive. To me, it all boils down to that. Unfortunately, we're bogged down for next year, and they have to remain in this win-now mentality for at least another season. you know, Cespedes isn't going to be around, I guess, but Bruce and Frazier will be. So they're doing more to bog us down than anything. They might help us. Next year, clinch a wild card in our wildest imagination? Sure. But they're doing more harm than good by their mere existence. Make the break. I'm starting to repeat myself. Make the break and become a more dynamic team. We've seen what they're capable of, even on their best day, and that's average baseball. This is more of a a reflection of the 40-man roster than it is on those three individuals or anybody else, last year included. Players, and you need to get that machine cranking, and then you can make your, your, your adjustments and your final touches that way. But they stopped. They stopped that mentality after 2015, and now they're paying the price for it.
1: Yeah, uh, Rich, if you want
0: to wrap it up in a tiny little boat. Well, that's exactly it. I I think the the core of the team is built on players between 30 and 34, uh, the middle of the lineup, I mean. And when you do that, that's a risk. And it's a bigger risk when you don't have reinforcements behind them, and the Mets don't. So when things went well, you have a basically a 500 team, and when they don't go well, you can't even sustain that 500 because you don't have anything backing it up. And that's an indictment, as Mike said, of the 40-man roster construction. It's, it's a, you know, chase the shiny the, the medium-priced shiny toy all the time and never change that philosophy to, you know, take the more methodical approach, build the, the farm systems like the Braves, like the Phillies. You know, these teams that you're seeing now – that are successful, the Braves, the Phillies, right in their own division, they did it that way. They built. When a, when a Brave or a Philly goes down, it seems like they have six guys behind them who are just as good. I know that, that's hyperbole, but it seems that when a Met goes down, you have to put Matt Den-Decker Den Decker on the 40-man roster just so you can have a major league center fielder. That's a big freaking difference, guys. You know, it is. Well, don't hate on that Jeff Decker, but hate on that uh... I actually like the guy. <laughs> I mean, I think he has good speed. He can play the position.
1: He's not, he's, he's another he's not a example good player. Of, he's another example of when they botched it, man. There's just like they have a bunch of Mark Sanchez. They have a bunch of Mark Sanchez. They keep botching it. Mark Sanchez is not the best quarterback but the Jets botched that entire thing. How are you going to run every time on second down? <laughs> uh, anyway, um, <laughs> I was about to go on a Brian Schottenheimer rant. Anyway, we don't, we're obviously not a Jets podcast, a jet scene podcast, if you will. Let's segue to number 17. Number 17 is the episode for first. And, uh, you guys might not be familiar, uh, for, for those of you who might be listening to this for the first time, uh, every episode we go through the list of uh, uh, players to wear number 17 in Met history, all of the players, it's actually a big list, um, and we also talk about the year that correlates with it, uh, 2017 in this particular case, oh, yippee, when this all started, uh, today. So 2017, but we're also we uh, we go back in time a hundred years to 1970 and get a little uh, NL legacy talk. Uh, Mike, you're going to be our liaison on that 1917 uh,
2: talk today. Very very short and simple. 1917, the Brooklyn Robins come in seventh place, 70 and 81. This is their fifth season at Ebbets Field. Uh, the year prior, they lost the World Series to the uh, Babe Ruth Red Sox. Uh, the New York Giants <laughs> lose yet another World Series. Uh, you know, I, I I don't know how many this is within this group of, this span of time, but it's far too many. They, they lost far too many in this era uh, than they won. I do know that. Uh, but they came in first place in the National League, 98 and 56, and lost to the Chicago White Sox, the go go Sox of another era. Uh, and the Yankees, still an on script team uh, within their first 20 years of existence. Uh, they're virtual nobodies on the landscape of baseball. They go 71 and 82, come in sixth place in the American League. And uh, it's not till basically the acquisition of Dave Ruth and other Red Sox. Uh, that was truly a Red Sox uh, team that the Yankees transformed into. But that's for another day. Uh, and that's 1917
0: in a show. I'm going to add one thing. I'm looking at the Yankee statistics here, and Wally Pip was on that team. Just thought I would throw that yes. in.
2: Yes, he was.
1: <laughs> um, let me also say that uh, it sounds like, unfortunately for the Giants, um, they had to, the 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 monsters had to wait two years and give it to Cincinnati for a world championship. So that's too that's unfortunate. We'll get into that, I guess, in nineteen nineteen. So um, number seventeen. Well, I guess two thousand seventeen. Don't don't need to really talk about this one all that much. Two thousand seventeen. Yay. Go ahead, Mike.
2: Uh, to me, you know, it's a mirror image of what's going on right now, so uh, I need it. You, you sensed last year that something was going down between the organization and Sandy Alderson, and sure enough, there was a Newsday report that I read that when Sandy Alderson stepped down this season uh, due to health reasons, that uh, stutterboat was that Jeff Wilpon was already seeking his termination uh, and, and just hadn't. Uh, Sandy Altson beat him to the punch essentially So to me you know we're talking About mirror images and that's why I won't Continue Uh, yet last year's Problem is this year's problem this year's problem Is last year's problem and on That note I'll hand it over to Rich
0: Yeah Uh, Last year 2017 Think about where they were coming from right Um, They had A World Series appearance National League pennant 15 qualified for the Playoffs with a really nice run in August and September in 16. So essentially the same team was coming back um, in 17, and you had reason to believe. You know, you had reason to believe. You had Matt Harvey, you had Syndergaard, you had DeGrom, you had Mats, um, You had Cespedes, Bruce, all these guys, and everything went wrong. And somebody said mirror image, I think Mike said mirror image in 18, and of course it was. The players all started going down one at a time. You know, Cespedes went out multiple times. Uh, guys left at cinder guard with a torn lat. Um, everything went wrong that could possibly go wrong. And, and it's amazing how eerily similar this year is. And um, yeah, so 17, I would say, was characterized by an enormous disappointment coming off of 15 and 16. And the sad part is 17 set us up for 18. So not, not a good year in Mets history.
1: It's just another reminder of how, like we all feared, the Will Funds have no chance at ever sustaining success. Um, Anyway, number 17, we all know who is number 17. Some people like to argue that the number should be retired, and that's Keith Hernandez. There's a lot of players on this list. Um, I need to honestly, to be perfectly honest, I need to pull over before I pull the list up. So I'm going to start with you, Mike. You
2: Go go at i uh, I'm I'm sorry. I got an echo, so I'm not quite sure what you said and who you said it to. Uh, to
0: you, Mike, about players to wear number seventeen. Ah uh, yes. Uh, you know what? I,
2: I'm going to start with Don Zimmer, only because he's the first in 1962, but not just because of that. You know, Don Zimmer is somebody in you know my baseball uh, mental Rolodex since. He was manager of the Red Sox. Uh, he's been around a long time. Uh, you know, God bless him, he's in a better place. But he's one of those baseball guys, you know, that, that they're just the the epitome of, of, of you know, 170 years of history. That's what I – when I look at Don Zimmer, that's what I see. I see the whole of history, baseball history lay out before Before my eyes. And very few people in the game do that to you. Don Zimmer was one of those. Only because, you know, he was there since day one of my baseball recollection, Uh, baseball wise. I'm not talking in that sense. Um, And again, that goes back to when he was manager of the Red Sox. And uh, just to me, one of those brilliant careers, you know, very nondescript as a player. He was obviously a Brooklyn Dodger. Uh but just one of the uh one of the great gentlemen of the game. Uh even even in light of that Pedro Martinez in the playoffs against the Inc. Uh, Red Sox and Inc. Uh it's it's just uh, another chapter and otherwise brilliant, brilliant baseball and uh, you know story. Incredible. Uh, we'll circle back around but I don't want to take too much time. There's more obviously more people on this list we're gonna talk about. So next.
1: Yeah, no, but so interesting about that Pedro Martinez Don Zimmer moment, um, is that like Pedro says of course he regrets it, but like it does make sense that like, you know, when, I'm, when a when a man Don Zimmer's size at that point uh, is coming towards you, you know, you kind of like your instinct kick it. <laughs> But, you know, he could grab his head and throw him to the ground. Who knows what could have happened? He, he was an older man. So, it's crazy that we watched that live on television. We watched that older. live on television, you guys. Yeah, older
2: crazy man. What, what a character. Oh what God. a
0: baseball character he was. <laughs> Rich, uh, take it away.
1: I'm about to fart. All
0: right, number 17. There's so many here. And a lot of guys wore 17 and other numbers. You know, David Cohn. Um, put on 17 the year after Hernandez was uh, finished with the Mets. So, Conan wore in 44, but then he wore 17, and you know it's kind of a tribute to Hernandez. Brett Saberhagen wore 17 in '94 and '95 after having worn a different number before that. Um, then there's the one that um, that kind of gets Keith's Scott the most. The two that get Keith Scott the most. Mr. Koo, Uh, we all know him from the Randy Johnson escapades on that Saturday afternoon game against the Yankees. So, uh, DeSung Koo. And Jose Lima is the one that Keith always talks about. Um, Jose Lima, obviously, great pitcher with the Astros, tried to resurrect his career with the Mets in 2006, uh, tragically passed away shortly thereafter. But he wore 17, and Keith wasn't too, too happy about that. So, it is a very long list, um... And what jumped out at me was a number of guys who wore it and also wore other numbers. And I'll make my final point on Felix Mion. As a young Met fan in the early 70s, Felix was one of my guys. You know, a guy who just didn't do anything particularly outstandingly, but just a solid, solid player, solid second baseman defensively, no power whatsoever. Didn't pretend to have power. Great contact hitter. Just the guy you wanted on your ball club, Felix meon Mike, doesn't that bring back a great memory?
2: Absolutely. I'm lockstep with you on that. Uh, great ball. You know, when you're a kid, he's great. Uh, obviously, we look at things more pragmatically now. But, you know, as a single digit midget, no, he was exceptional. And I'll just never forget that day he got into a fight with Ed Ott, whom effectively ended his career. Body slammed him yeah. WWF style. Uh, and I'll never forgive him for that because he ended, you know, to me, uh, that that to me was uh, just another. Uh, how, how would you say, Rich? But it was just, uh, you know, you, you knew the end was coming, and that was a part of it because everything around us was crumbling.
0: Yeah, that that happened in '77, and we yeah. all know what happened that year. And uh, Sam, I think you you probably weren't weren't around then, but. Um, you, you may have seen video of this, but what happened was it was a play at second base. Uh, you know, Mian didn't like the way Ott came in, but, you know, they had words, what have you. Next thing you know, um, Ed Ott was built like a bowling ball. He, basic, he basically picked Mian up and threw him on the ground in a fight, and Mian, I think, separated his shoulder. <laughs> and his shoulder yeah, uh, I think he broke face. his collarbone. Collarbone, that's right. And that basically ended his career. If he If he did anything else after that, it was very minimal.
2: You do know he played in Japan after that, though.
0: I did not know that. Okay, did. I did not know that. <laughs> very
2: briefly, very briefly. You no. Know, but that did effectively end his career. He tried coming back. He did play uh, some games in Japan, but that, that's about it. That, that was a wrap on his career.
0: Interesting.
1: Felix Milan is one of my... This right? Mian. Felix Mean is one of my favorites of... <laughs> the Mets eras that, uh, that I did not experience. And um, he's just, just one of those players. And, and you said, so that happened in 1977. Was he there in 1978 at second base? No. Okay. But he's just one of my favorite players from the 1970s and just overall one of my favorite Mets players to learn about. Um, hold on, I have the list here. Um, you know, when look, when looking at it, yeah, uh, it's really, like, Felix Mian, and, and it's interesting because he had number 17 uh, guys before Keith did, um, but, but Keith mentions him a lot of times when talking about great second basemen. I, I, I know that, like, I just hear him bring, bring Felix up a lot, and you could probably argue, uh, and Rich, you want to take this uh, uh, now, the only stash that you could argue could rival... Uh, uh, Keith Hernandez as, as the greatest stash of all time in Mets history. Yeah,
0: you know I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, it. I think you're absolutely right on that. I. How, Mike, how do you see it? Um. I no no problem there. Uh, I'm with you. Yeah.
1: Uh, that's that's Really, that's all that number seventeen matters for stashes, right? Um,
2: well, you know what? But, you know. I, I would I would love to give honorable mention, though, to Ellis Valentine. By the time he got to the Mets, he was a shell of his former self. He had gotten hit uh, in the face, right, Rich? And, and yep. he was never the same again. But what an exceptional ball player he was for the Montreal Expos. And uh, even during his years with the Mets, he had a cannon, a cannon of an arm out in right field that would rival anybody's in the game. Uh he deserves honorable mention. I remember uh, when the trade was announced, I was truly excited. Uh, but, again, he was a, a shell of his, of his former self. Had we gotten a younger Ellis Valentine, oh, boy, what a coup that would have been, right, Rich?
0: Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the Montreal Expos had some great outfielders. And in the late 70s, they had Warren Cromarty and Ellis Valentine in, in the outfield, and, and Cromartie was – was more of like a Michael Conforto type, you know, solid hitter, solid defender. But Valentine was a Dave Parker type. Valentine was a guy who could hit the ball. He could hit the ball 500 feet. He could throw you out with his back against the right field wall. He could run. He was everything. He was the whole package. And And like Mike said, he got hit in the face. He was one of the first players to wear the football helmet thing on the helmet after he and Dave Parker both did that, but he was a pioneer in that regard after he got hit in the face, the Mets got him for Joel Youngblood. And it, and that showed you something right there because it showed you how far Valentine had fallen, um, that he was traded for Youngblood, who was a solid player, but, but certainly not, you know, not, not nearly on that level. And Valentine did not have a good couple of years with the Mets. He was he was clearly just not the same.
2: Uh, true. And three cheers for Rod Gaspar. Member of sixty nine
0: minutes. Yes. Yes, Rod Gaspar, I love it. <laughs> well,
1: I'll I'll finish it out here with um some of the names that have jumped out to me after that. Uh like you said, David Cohn and and I I guess it's not yeah, he switched to number seventeen but it's not necessarily the number remembered. What was what was the other number he wore? Who's that? Uh, David Cohn. 44.
2: 44.
1: Right. Like, right. of course, of course. Um, yeah, so Mike Bordick, Kevin Apier, and Graham Lloyd to round it out are really the, the names that jumped out to me. Now, Fernando Tatis was the last to wear number 17. Um, and I, I liked uh, Fernando Tatis the year he was on. He was, you know, the thing about it was like, I really liked him in 2008. I hated him after that. But, um... Do you think, guys, and I'll start with you, Mike, that, that the reason they haven't given 17, it's like all of a sudden, you know, with, like, number eight, number 16, it's fallen into, and I think specifically with Keith since he's more attached to the team in many ways than Dwight is, uh, you know, the fact that, that the fact that Keith is barking about it so much, do you think that's the biggest reason why we haven't even seen it been given out to you know another uh
2: dateson crew, if you will, or Wilson Delgado uh I'd like to think so i I'd like to think that you know they're trying to protect that number for the sake, uh whether he put pressure on them you know in indirectly or, or or not uh hopefully- hopefully they're starting to recognize that you know some of these numbers should be protected i mean this goes right up there with Willie Mays. What are they ever going to do with that number? so you might as well retire it. You know, and number 17 definitely, uh, you know, he, he's worthy of, of strong consideration to have his number retired. But in the meantime, you should store it away and not give it out. And if a player should come along and ask for it, you know, the Mets can kindly ask him, well, maybe you might want to consider a different number. You don't have to, don't have to be brutal about it. You know what I mean? I do.
0: I do know what you mean. Rich? Well, isn't it kind of? I don't know. I think we're, I feel like we've been picking on the organization a lot, and maybe we should. <laughs> uh, but but isn't it kind of so Mets the way they've handled number seventeen? It's like, yeah, Keith, we love you, man. We love you. Um, and someday we might retire your number, but while we're thinking about that, we're going to give it to all these other guys too. It's like, what are you doing? You know it, it's uh, th- that's my thought on 17 it's they kind of you they kind of give it to players but you could see they kind of don't as well at the same time like they're kind of holding it in reserve but not really I don't know if that's just my perception of it but it seems like they'll give out 17 willfully you know to people but then they sort of hold it back a little like someday they might want to retire I don't. do you guys see it that way I've always had that feeling on that
1: I yeah, so completely, completely wish you were. Stop walk. half-assing these retirements. So stop half-assing giving numbers out. Whatever is you have two players that you can you can argue with number eight. Uh, even though I understand that like people think Yogi costs in the series, but still. You know, like he won, he won a, a championship within the third base, and Gary Carter's number eight. You have two players, and you can really just do it for Gary Carter, especially. Like, why are you? Why did you ever take down the plate off of the outfield wall? Let me ask you that. Ralph Heiner's staying up there, and I understand why Ralph Kiner would maybe stay up there longer than Gary, but like that, that's that's a way to 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 keep it up there, and. If, if you're not going to hand number eight out, retire it. If you're not going to hand number 17 out, retire it. Retire the beloved people. You know, we don't have to go all Yankees about it, but you don't have to be that much anti-Yankee about it. Ah! Ah!
0: I get it, man. I get it. It's like, and you know, Keith Keith feels the same way we do. It's kind of like, stop half-assing it. Either Either, say, look, Keith, we love you, man, but... You, you know, you don't, your place in Mets history does not warn a retired number. I'm, I don't agree with that, but okay. And just move on. But, but this half-assing it, like, it's almost, the way it comes off is, it's like Jeff Wilpon's mood. He wakes up one day, and maybe he got up on the wrong side of the bed, and he's like, screw Hernandez. You know, I'll, let's give out his number. I, screw that guy. But then he, he thinks about it, and the next day he's like, well, maybe we shouldn't give out the number. We might want to retire it someday. That's the way it comes off. And it, and when you're doing something like that, the perception of your customers is that the organization doesn't have its shit together, and that's never good.
1: Mike sounds like firing Leo deroche over and over again
2: maybe uh, <laughs> maybe, less, you know, maybe, well,
1: less, maybe less drunk maybe less drunk, maybe,
2: maybe. We're, we're gonna wrap up the show on this note, aren't we? Look we still don't have a freaking statue, okay when they when they <laughs> opens up this. When they opened up this shrine to the Dodgers in 2009, the Mets' Hall of Fame had not yet been incorporated into the building. And here we are, gearing over number 17? Think about the makers and the founders of this tragedy. You know, so what, what can we say? There's parks, teams, organizations, building statues for players, As we speak Yet We Don't have a single One And up in the Bronx is a whole cemetery Behind that center field wall You know Uh, Please Can can (laughs) we Get a grasp Of Mets history And celebrate it The way it should be Celebrated Please, please, please. So that'll be my final word before we even get to it. Please, please, please. Have some Rich, met sensibilities. Have some met sensibilities, please. Come on, Rich. What?
1: What is your final word?
0: Well, you know, in a lost season like this, and we've already expressed everything about young players, old players, trying to win, seeing talent, all that stuff. I got to go with Mike on this. I was at City today. And it's just, you know, when when, when you don't have a good product on the field to think about, that kind of stuff you do think about. And why isn't there a statue of Rusty Staub? You know, I I know we, you know, Mike says Payson, no argument here, sure. Seaver, no one would argue that either. I would be fine with either. My thought, though, if you're going to put a statue for somebody, it should be my opinion, Rusty Staub, because of all the humanitarian work he did and he passed this year and all of that. But why isn't there anything? Whether it's Staub, Payson, Seaver, Hernandez, I don't care who, Carter, doesn't matter. Why isn't there something that, you know, and they have that. Because the fans screamed at him, They opened up that, that Mets Hall of Fame, okay. But it's no, did you notice it's right near the team's store, and you can't get there unless you go through the store, right? Um, so, I don't know. It, it's just it's a tone deafness that the lack of a statue, the lack of celebrating the history is a big symptom of it. There are many other symptoms. But I think if I had to point to the disease, it would be tone deafness. They're just tone deaf.
1: I'm gonna go a little positive on this. Uh, this end. it has been such a negative year, not only for
2: um,
1: not only for the Mets, but for uh, you, know, you know, for myself in many ways. Uh, even though there's a lot of positivity to take out of the experience that I had out here in Denver with uh, spending time with my dad and making a movie about him, uh, filming a movie about him. Now I have to make it. But I'm coming home. And home is the final word. Uh, I'm going to be able to experience some games in this lost season, which, weirdly enough, as I I will be coming back to New York uh, in September, I I will also be back at Citi Field. in the conditions that I I made my bread and butter of Citi Field with, and that's these lousy-matched teams, Um, I would – much more appreciate coming home to a, a pennant race and having a 2015. The 2015 was unique, was unique unto itself for Mets fans, but also to me because I was working the pizza place, Two Boots, in center field for that year in September. So I'll never have that again, one way or the other. And I really, and, and, and as much as I really appreciated seeing it from that perspective, because I was able, yes, I was able to go to every game for free, but I wasn't able to sit there and enjoy every game like uh, fans were when it, when it comes to the first playoff appearance of City Field history. And I wouldn't like to be coming home to some hot tennis races. But at the same time, considering that I need to relax and, and, you know, maybe some Met fans need to relax at this point come September because we're so exacerbated. We need more room to spread our legs uh, in the in the right behind home freight in the uh, the upper deck, and that's what we'll that's what we'll have to take with this September run, and yet another closing day where we know in fact, exactly when closing day is. So home, one way or the other, that is the idea of baseball is to come home, and I am doing so, and hopefully the Mets can come home more often than not in the near future than the opposition. And and ladies and gentlemen, I will close out with that. Uh uh Rich, Mike, thank you guys so much as always for uh for being the uh three headed monster of this.
2: Thank you, sir. Thank
1: you. Thank you. And uh thank you guys the listener for uh for continuing to uh to tune in and what else is there to say but Let's go, Matt.
2: Good night. Let's go, go Matt. Good night, guys.